0: You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. We are more than halfway through our series in the book of Judges, and you may have detected some patterns by now. We've been watching the people of God through this this repeated cycle of rebellion, and then regret or repentance, and then rescue. And some of you might already be tired of seeing this diagram by now. Um, the idea might be, okay, we get it. We, we get it. How can we possibly benefit from seeing this same story playing out over and over and over again? Why couldn't we just do like two sermons in the book of Judges? Well, for one, God didn't waste any ink If it's in Scripture, it's meant to be there. God intended it to be there for his people's good. And secondly, this pattern's not just repeating, copy and paste, over and over. In many cases, it's getting worse and worse. It's morphing and changing. The cycle is still there, but it's getting worse and worse. It's not just a spin cycle. It's a downward spiral. Each generation seems to fall further in some new way than the last one did. And we're definitely going to see some evidence of that in our text today. But before we get into that, I need to remind us of something. We are not here for their story, for those people's story. Although they really lived, and this is real history, our main reason for retelling their story is not so we can learn about what happened to them Our point is not even to read this story to learn a lesson for today about what we can do and not do, although I'm sure you'll pick up plenty of that as we go through it. The reason that we're ultimately looking at this text today, and it's really the same reason why we're just looking at the book of Judges as a whole series, and really, it's the same reason as to why we read this book at all. It's because when we read this book, God speaks to us. When we preach from this book, God speaks to his people. This is not just a history lesson about some messed up people who lived a long time ago. This is an account inspired by God, designed to reveal God to you this morning and to me. He has spoken to us. He has given us hundreds of pages about him. And that means that some part of who he is is in this text today. Some part of the truth of who you are is in this text today. It's bound up in this story. Some part of that truth is in here, and it's worth our time. So we read it, even if we don't understand it at first, even when it hurts us, even when it offends us. And I I say that because we need to be convinced of that now before we even read the first word, because today we're going to be looking at some truly bizarre and disturbing and honestly disgusting passages of scripture. And yes, it is still technically kid-friendly, so we'll we'll get there. But we're going to watch God's chosen Savior do some terrible, terrible, unthinkable things. He saves God's people, yes, but it is a flawed salvation. That's the title for our sermon this morning, flawed salvation. Our series vision is this, seeking God's merciful rescue to break the cycles of our rebellious sin. As I said before, something about you is, is in this book. Something that's true about you is in this book, about your heart. The way that you sin is no different from the way that these people sin. How it happens, how it is bred and born, your sins may be different from theirs. But our cycles of rebellious sin can be broken as we seek God's merciful rescue in the same way that it happened back then. So today we're going to learn how we can worship God for that merciful rescue, even when it's not pretty to look at. Our big idea from the text this morning is this, allow every flawed salvation to point you toward your perfect Savior. Allow every flawed salvation to point you toward your perfect Savior. And that's every flawed salvation you see in the book of Judges, every flawed salvation you will see in this passage that we're going to read today, and every flawed salvation, every damaged or broken work of grace that God works in your life, allow all of them to point you toward your perfect Savior. I have a question for you in thinking about that and how we're going to get there. How many of you are familiar with what a prototype is? Just in general, you know that word, you've heard that word. A prototype, in in talking about marketing and and producing things to be sold, it's the first version of a product. When you get a brand new uh, product on the store shelves, something that Apple comes out with that does a brand new thing, it's never done anything like this before. It's not just a better version of an old thing. They didn't just invent that the previous week and then just roll it out on the shelf like two days later. There's research and development. Somewhere way back down the line, somebody had a crazy idea, and they said, there's this new thing that I think we could make. Let's try something, and they created a prototype. And if you've ever seen pictures of prototypes, I was gonna bring one, but it can be distracting because it's real goofy. Um, a, A photo of what the original idea for the iPad looked like. In 1984, they had this thought. I'm like, what about a screen that you could touch that's a computer that you could move? And it was like, larger than this podium. Um, but the idea is, it's the first version, the, the word prototype is it's Greek, it literally means first of its kind. And so a prototype looks one way, and the end result that you get on the shelf looks radically different usually, but the idea is still there. You can see the idea, what they're going for, you can see how it's the same type of, of invention, same type of product, even though they look nothing alike. And so today, we're going we're to see that in the book of Judges. We'll see something, that, something like that as we read the story of Jephthah. He does some unthinkable things. And yet, in his flawed salvation, we can see the prototype of the Savior to come. Now, that prototype analogy falls apart pretty quickly if you overthink it. God's not doing research and development as he's creating new people to save Israel. He's not because he's failing over and over again at creating the Savior that he wants. But this grotesque story of a flawed salvation, it points us to our perfect Savior. You can see a glimmer of the end result in the way that this takes place. So let's read, but before we do, let's pray one more time very quickly, and ask the Spirit of God to help us. God, we have confessed before you that we need you, We can't understand your word without you. And we believe, we agree and believe right now that you have not spoken in vain ever. You have something for us today. Help us. Help us to be moldable in your hands. Help us to understand, Spirit, enlighten us. Show us something of ourself and something of you that we did not see before. And call us to repentance and call us to obedience. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So if you were already there, we are in Judges chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 5. Judges chapter 10. Sorry, 1 through (laughs) 5. After Abimelech, there rose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him rose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havol Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Well, that got off to a weird start. Uh, I gave all this warning about a shocking, terrifying passage of Scripture, and then we get a story about 30 donkeys. Um, what is the point of this passage? What can we learn about the character of God, and the nature of God, from this weird story about 30 donkeys? Well, the first lesson of flawed salvation, our first point for the sermon today, the first lesson of flawed salvation we'll look at is right here. Tola and Jair brought a temporary peace. The first point is Tola and Jair brought about a temporary peace. So this chapter picks up after the Abimelech story. If you remember that from last week, Abimelech was this illegitimate half-breed son of Gideon who got a little prideful, a lot prideful, and he killed all 69 of his brothers. He made himself, tried to make himself king and rule over Israel with an iron fist, and it didn't go well for him. He got his head crushed by a rock thrown by a woman, then it got speared through by a little boy. It was a bad time for Israel. We we aren't told exactly how long it takes between that story, but Tola arrives on the scene afterward, and the place is a mess. We hardly get any details about what Tola actually did. He arose to save Israel, is all the text really says. But we can pretty safely assume that because of the language that's used here, how similar it is to the descriptions of judges who the Lord used, that this saving that he brings is, it generally fits that pattern that we've seen so far in judges. The people are in sin, they repent or they they regret, they cry out for deliverance. God raises up a savior, a judge, and he defeats their enemy, whatever that is, whoever it is, and he brings peace to God's people. And as long as he lives and reigns, the people have some form of peace. We can assume that that same pattern happens here Tola, but we get no other details other than that his family name is kind of funny to say. The understanding that he did something like that is all we get about Tola. He's a generic good judge. Then we get Jair. We can make a couple more inferences about him. We can assume that he does some act of saving that's similar to what Tola did, since they're basically mentioned in the same breath. But then we get this detail about his sons and their donkeys, and one easy inference we can make there is, statistically, you don't get 30 sons unless you have a roughly similar number of daughters, and you don't have roughly 60 children from the same mother. We can pretty safely assume here that Jair had multiple wives, and he's taking, it seems he's taken a page out of Gideon's playbook. He seems to be a, a righteous man. He fits that, that calling of a judge To a certain degree, God used him to save his people, but then he gets a little full of himself. He takes up multiple wives, which is, by the way, a very pagan thing to do. Entirely too many kings of Israel and Judah did that same thing, but God never endorses that. That is a thing that pagan kings do to show off their wealth and their power. It's a pagan king activity. And then, on top of it, each of his 30 sons... They each get a donkey, which again, that sounds kind of funny to us. But the Hebrew language has more than one way to use the word donkey. It's a different word for different meanings. This one is not a pack mule or that's pulling a cart or a plow. This is designed, this word is used as a vehicle. It is a riding animal. That's a status symbol. That's a symbol of wealth. And it's also a symbol of peace. It's not a war horse. It's donkey. That's why Jesus came into town on a donkey and not a war horse. They symbolize peace and and to a certain degree prosperity. So Jair won the victory, whatever it was, and he's basking in the glory of his reign of peace. And, And then it says each of his wealthy sons were given their own city to be in charge of. They each had a city. And so he's cementing his legacy. He's He seems to be pretty highly esteeming himself. And he says, I'm going to have all my sons rule over the people. They'll rule just like me. When I'm gone, these glory days will continue. Let's make these golden years last forever is the inference we see from just that short sentence there. But it does not last. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and to the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and also from the Philistines and the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites opposed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. What we just read is perhaps the clearest picture of the rebellion and repentance parts of that cycle that we will ever get in the book of Judges. We often just have it in one sentence, the people cried out, or we have a dialogue between God and his people. You probably didn't even notice this when you read it just now, but doesn't that seem a little bit weird? How did this conversation work, like functionally? Like who said what and when? Was it, it says God spoke to the people and the people said to God, was Israel, all of Israel standing together in the same place? speaking these words in unison to God's voice that's coming down from heaven? Probably not. It's likely that God raised up another prophet and spoke through him, spoke through him to the leaders of Israel, and their back and forth, the back and forth between this prophet of God and the leaders of Israel, that communication gets turned into this literary conversation. But because it was written this way, We get a step-by-step look at the heart of God's people as they move toward repentance. They start in verse 10, and they say, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And that sounds like a pretty good start. I don't know about you, but if I was trying to evangelize to someone and I just, I poured my heart out in the gospel to them, I told them the danger and the, the danger they were in and the, the consequences of sin and the beauty of the gospel, and the first thing they said to me was, surely I have sinned against God, forsaking him and serving idols. I'd be like, yes, I would be very encouraged. I might lead them in some form of prayer right there. That sounds like repentance to me, but God doesn't seem encouraged by the first thing that they say. Look how he responds. He said, did I not save you from, insert giant list of people, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you in your distress. Ouch. Can you possibly imagine hearing that from God to you? He straight up tells them, I will not save you. And then he gets sarcastic with it. Go, cry out to the gods who you've chosen. You made your bed, now sleep in it. It it reminds me of like when a a cheating ex-girlfriend tries to get her man to take her back. And he says, no, you've made your choice. Go be with one of your new boyfriends. I hope he makes you happy. He's not wrong to say that. But why does God say that? Isn't this the same God? Isn't this the covenant making God who's faithful from age to age? Whatever happened to, you, I will never leave you and, fors- and forsake you. We can be quick to ask those kind of questions. Because to tell the truth, most of us have experienced something, something like this to one degree or another. We get caught in sin and we feel the pain that it causes, and then suddenly we remember that God exists. <laughs> We've been forgetting him for quite a while, but we remember and we cry out to him and we apologize for all of the bad behavior and we ask him to fix it. And we, we desperately ask him to fix it and nothing gets fixed and it feels like he's abandoned us. It can feel like he's saying, I'm done with you. I will not save you. You've gone too far this time. But then how do they answer back in the next Passage here. They don't return God's apparent abandonment and say, Okay, fine, I guess we have to go to these other gods again All right bye. They don't go there. They they stay where they are and they say, We have sinned. Do whatever do to us whatever seems right to you. Only please deliver us this day. Now that sounds really encouraging. God broke through that first layer of false repentance, and now this sounds really encouraging. That sounds like real repentance. Even after God says no, they still admit that they're wrong. It seems they've taken a step closer toward real repentance. But really, if you look at it again, what's that last thing that they said? Please deliver us this day. Yes, you do what you want. You're God. We're wrong. But still, please give us this solution. The bottom line is still their request. It's not until the next verse that we see true repentance and faith. And it says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now we've hit repentance because we get to see that about face, that 180 degree turn. And then I love, I love God's response here. It says, he became impatient with the misery of Israel. That's a weird word to describe God. Um, that almost sounds like sin, being impatient, but not in this case. The Hebrew word that's translated as impatient, it's an idiom. And the literal translation of it means his soul was short. His soul had grown short. And the idea there is that time is running out on how long God will let this pain and misery hang over the head of his people. Time's running out. It's running short. And soon, God's heart of compassion will overflow. It will compel him to come down and to save. He grew impatient. Real repentance. That's what God's people do. They repent and they serve the Lord. I want to take a... Quick pause, and, and it's so easy when, you, when we're seeing God described in these ways. One, we forget a lot of times that God does not just think that he's actually a person and that he feels. In the same way, though, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his feelings are much higher than our feelings. We are stuck in space and time, and we respond to stuff that's in front of us. God is much bigger than that. God is much greater than that. And so we can, don't fall into the assumption that your repentance is what changes God's mood. This is just a description of God's heart toward his people, and repentance just cements that. It signs your name under it. Yes, God will let his people stew in the consequences of their sin for a while, to draw them to repentance. But as soon as their heart makes that shift to godly repentance rather than worldly repentance, the timer runs out. His heart is moved by that. Watching his people suffer moves him deeply with pity and compassion. But what can he do? What can be done now? Okay, we've, we've, we've made some amends in the relationship between God and his people. They've, they realized that they were in the wrong. They've repented, they've, they've brought themselves low. God can reach down and send another human savior and he will do that, but the cycle is just gonna continue. They'll have rest for a while, like they do every time, but it's gonna be temporary. Like the short golden years of Tola and Jair, the generic judges from the beginning of this chapter, things are all right while the judge is there, but when he dies, the people fall back into destructive sin. The second half of our first point there is Tola and Jair brought about temporary peace. God's people need eternal peace. They brought about a temporary peace, but God's people need an eternal peace. So again, our big idea from the text today is every flawed salvation should point you toward your perfect Savior. So have you ever gone through a time that was similar to the time of Tola and Jair, where everything seemed to be going well? Maybe your finances are relatively in order. Maybe your relationships were in a good place. You were in a good place spiritually. You felt good. You just generally felt good. It was a season of that. And sometimes that can come from a a mountaintop spiritual experience. You went to a really great conference. You heard a really great sermon. Something clicked, and you just had a, a mountaintop spiritual experience. And let me ask you this. How did it feel... When that season ended, when you came crashing down to earth, can anyone testify to that feeling, that period of time, that period of of blessing, that period of grace, that period of salvation? it, It can fit into the same spiritual category as these flawed salvations that we see in Judges. There's a glimmer of the hope to come, but the whole event is ultimately subject to corruption, and it's temporary. So the discipline we want to cultivate today is allowing that flawed salvation, that temporary season, that flawed salvation to keep our eyes fixed upon, to point our eyes toward our perfect Savior. Jesus is the greater Tola. He is the greater Jair. He will bring about the real glory days the days of unending glory, and just like the book of Judges, Jesus will one day come and judge the enemies of God and bring his people peace, and how long is that peace going to last? It lasts as long as the judge lives and his peace will reign forever, because Jesus will never die. So that is the picture we need to see every time we see a flawed salvation, like this tiny season, this tiny footnote of peace that we see in Tola and Jair. And that brings us to the meat of our story today. The people went searching for their next savior after Abimelech's whole situation and Tola and Jair's time has long passed. The people are in deep sin. They have called up to God. His heart is running short and it's time for waiting. He's going to save them. And so they're searching for who that savior is going to be. Let's look in verse 17. I read this passage together. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do what you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words, before the Lord at Mizpah. So let's let's zero in on our hero of the day. Jephthah is a mighty warrior, but he's an outcast. He was pushed out by his brothers, his half-brothers. And that probably means that he was the firstborn. He was his father's first son, even though he was from another woman. Because in, in Jewish law, an illegitimate son doesn't have any Claim on the blessing, on the inheritance. But the firstborn that trumps any question of, of legitimacy. So he would have a, a stake in the inheritance if he was the firstborn. And they said, Hey, eh, we don't want that. We don't want this random guy from, from some other mom, our half brother. We can get him out of here so that we can get a bigger share. And so they cast him out. Jephthah's an outcast. So his, his backstabbing brothers, they all force him out, and he spends his days out in the desert towns of Tob using his natural talents to make himself a living. When I, when I think about this description of Jephthah, this picture, this story that's being written here, I get some strong Aragorn vibes. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there, they'll remember Aragorn, the way you first see him, especially in the, in the films. He's an outcast, he is a half-breed, he's an heir to the throne, he's a natural leader, but he spends a lot of time hanging around questionable people, other outcasts, he's not thought of very highly. He's, he's certainly not a bad guy, but he doesn't look like a good guy when you first see him. And, and the text says, worthless men gathered around Jephthah and went out with him. The term worthless there, it's not saying that they didn't contribute anything to society. It's, it's saying that, that they were outcasts. It's the same as, as Jephthah there. Jephthah is an outcast with leadership qualities who becomes the leader of the outcasts. And then when it says that they went out with him, it's not saying they just like to to go out for a fun night on the town. This is military language in Hebrew. This is, they went out with their armed forces with him, but they're not representing any country or nation. They're raiders. They are vigilantes. Because we see, Jephah's not a purely evil guy. It's very unlikely that he was just like a bandit, but maybe he did some street justice. Maybe he did some things that were definitely morally questionable. That is the situation that Jephthah was in for years, years and years. However a bad boy he was, the leaders of Gilead seemed to think that there might be some convincing of him, that he might be able to convince to to come home to save Israel. Some of these men, these leaders of Gilead, who went out to ask him of this, they might have even been his brothers who threw him out. Gilead the, the area and Gilead the family name and Gilead the person are all three different things. And this is not the original Gilead who is his dad. This is generations later someone else takes up that same name. and But you, you would imagine it's someone of prominence. It's not just some random guy in the tribe who just decides to take the entire tribe's name. Um, so it's very possible that these men who are coming to ask Jephthah to save them are even his same brothers who cast him out. And Jephthah has the same kind of sarcastic response that God had. You see some, some parallels, some mirrored images between their conversation with God saying, please save us, and their conversation with Jephthah saying, please save us. Jephthah says, no, you hated me and kicked me out. You made your bed and I'll sleep in it. But like before, they persist and they prove themselves genuine. They do what they said they would do. Where it, says, where it says that I will be your leader, Jephthah says, the, the Hebrew there is intentionally ambiguous. It could either be translated as I will be your leader or will I be your leader? It could also be a question. And it means, can I actually trust you to do what you say? You say that you've repented of this evil that you've done to me. You say that you will lift me up with honor and make me your leader, but will you really do it? And again, like in their discussion with God, their response, their actions show that they were serious. They admit that they were wrong, and they prove it with what they do. They lift him up as their leader. And it says, you have spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Speaking his words before the Lord, it means that they made this contract official. They, they would have taken him to the tabernacle or brought a priest down to where he was And done some kind of official ceremony, something like a coronation. He's not becoming king, but it's something like it. And at that ceremony, there would be a time for prayer and a time for making vows, promises, declarations before the Lord. And that's going to become important later. And as we'll see later on, after this, after he becomes the leader, he travels throughout parts of Israel before going out against the Ammonites, because word has spread that Israel has their new champion. A new judge has arrived on the scene and they know what that means. Jephthah probably also had a reputation for being a mighty man of war. Their grandparents, all of Israel's grandparents told them the story of Gideon and what God can do with even a small army. They know what happens when God raises up a judge. They can smell the victory that's coming. And as he travels through, he builds up this army from among the tribes that he visits. If he pulls into town with his with his army that he's growing, and you have every confidence that the Lord's going to deliver you and bring you the victory, you're probably going to join up. And there's great hope in the people at this point. They have repented. They have their new champion. They're forming together a pretty substantial army. Victory is right around the corner. But they cannot see the horrible plot twist that is coming afterward. Here's our second lesson of flawed salvation that we'll look at this morning. Jephthah brought the hope of victory, but, and we'll fill in what that tragedy is later. Let's keep going to see what that is. Jephthah brought the hope of victory. There's so much hope in the people. He's in power now, but let's, let's read to see how he starts to handle Israel's enemies. There's is a longer block of text here, and I'll explain as we go along. Verse 12, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered with the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness and came to the Red Sea and then to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. What's happening here? Jephthah is, he doesn't rush into battle, which is kind of surprising, honestly. for being a raider, for being an Aragorn kind of guy, he rushes to diplomacy and arguing his case. He sends messengers to the king of Ammon, the leader of these, these Ammonite armies who are getting ready to destroy. He says, what is your deal? Why are you here to destroy us? And he makes this claim that the Israelites stole this land, that they stole it from his people generations past. This is hundreds of years prior. And Jephthah responds. Again, before even pulling out a sword and starting the fight, he responds. And he says, no, actually, I have the accurate history here. If you'll remember, our people fled out of Egypt. We're trying to get to our homeland, which is on the other side of the sea there. And we have to pass through somewhere. We asked these people if we could pass through. They said no. We asked these people if we could pass through. They said no. We went all the way around. The only middle passage we could go through was this land we're in right now. And as we were there, this is where he picks up. He says, no, we we didn't do that. We did not steal anybody's land. Here's what happened. This is Jephthah continuing, describing what actually happened in history. He says, then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and around the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. That's the river. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, kings of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please, let us pass through your land on to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Pause for a second. So he's saying, no, sorry, we didn't steal anything. We were just trying to move through. We have records of this. We just tried to pass through to get to our land. And this guy showed up with all his armies to wipe us off the face of the map. We acted in self-defense. And there's nobody left to take the land after they were gone. God God gave this to us. In fact, he he doesn't claim this, but this is true as well. The promised land, includes all of these lands inhabited by pagans. Technically, Jephthah could just pull the trump card and say, actually, no, all of this land belongs to God and he's given it to us, you gotta go. That's what the the book of Judges is all about, failing to drive out all of these pagans who lived in the promised land. He doesn't even go there, he just says, no, 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 we acted in self-defense. We didn't steal this land from anybody. We deserve to be here, we are in the right. And so, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to fight for it today. Let's pick up where we left off. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Ammonites who inhabit, inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the wilderness of the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. And this is him talking to that leader of the Ammonites now. He says, and, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, who, your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? That's the king who has been in charge of this, this, this land for all those years between the time that that happened. He said, why didn't he come and kick us out? If, if he was the rightful owner of it, why didn't he kick us out for these hundreds of years? Where are you getting this from? No, you're inventing this. You're just power hungry while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Erewer and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So he took this diplomatic, this legal approach, which again is very surprising to me. And if this would have worked, it would have been the first time that a judge argued Israel into salvation. (laughs) Um, But even though it doesn't work, that whole discourse, it proves something about Jephthah. And that is that he's no dummy. He knows his stuff. He is clever. And to some degree, he has been educated. And that's going to become important later too. But this this whole discourse, this whole argument about history with the leader of the raiding uh, nation that's coming in, that sets up the stage for a righteous battle. Israel is in the right here. The Ammonites are clearly the bad guys. That has been declared publicly now. And what I love about the book of Judges is that even though it definitely shows how sinful God's people are, it's also filled with graphic Epic, detailed descriptions of the bad guys just getting destroyed. There is so much fun action in the book of Judges. So let's read. Let's read some more to see this glorious victory story that has been set up here. Let's read verse 29. In verse 29, it says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Here we go. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. This is him gathering his army. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he's a, he's a pious guy, it seems. He is, he is wanting to honor the Lord. He is a righteous hero. Here he comes. And so Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Menith, 20 cities, as far as the Ab- abel Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. That's it. <laughs> That's our story. That's all the detail that we get about his epic victory. It might as well have just been summarized with one sentence, and he won. Like, come on. Jephthah is our Aragorn. He's our hero. We're setting up for a Lord of the Rings-style battle scene, and we instead get a two-sentence summary. Where's the epic victory story? The main bad guys up until this point in Judges, they get stabbed in the gut. They get a tent spike through the head. They get their head crushed with a rock. Epic crushing victory blows. We get stories like Gideon and his tiny army destroying thousands of Midianites. By this point in Judges, we're accustomed to celebrating the Judges' victory and celebrating the bad guy's defeat. It just feels so good. Why don't we get that story here? And it's because of what happens next. Jephthah brought the hope of victory, and he brought the victory. But let's keep reading. Verse 34. Then... Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity and my, me and my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions to weep for her virginity on the mountains, and at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days out of the year. What? 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 I have written in my notes right here to pause and pray, so let's do that. God, we need your help. This does not make sense to us. This does not meet our expectations. Lord, help us to grapple with what we see here and help me to not get in the way of what you have. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I need to level with you. I have never been so angry at someone that I've never met than I was at Jephthah as I studied this passage this week. I want to go back in time to that moment and I want to square up to Jephthah and I want to punch him dead in the jaw. I want to knock his teeth out. As a dad, as a new dad of a little girl, let's just say that my passions here are strong and I could easily get carried away with my personal response if I was faced with something this evil. The reason we don't get much detail about Jephthah's victory is because his legacy is tarnished forever by this sin. It doesn't matter how nice or expensive The dress is, you don't wear it if it's got a giant, disgusting stain on the front. That's Jephthah. In fact, if you knew anything at all about Jephthah before today, before you heard that story, I guarantee you its that what you knew was that part of the story. That's all anyone remembers about Jephthah. That second point is, Jephthah brought the hope of victory, but followed it with sin and shame. God's people need a savior who won't disappoint them. How could this have happened? We said it before that Jephthah was like this Aragorn-like character, this hero they were setting him up to be. He was a natural leader. He had a magnetic personality. It was a comeback story. He was educated. He was cunning. And, And if he was educated in history, like he clearly was, you can bet he was also educated in Jewish theology to some degree. They had the Torah in some form. I'm not saying he was a seminary student, but he was not a pagan either. Bottom line, he should have known better than this. And it's actually worse than it looks at first glance. It's not just that he made this general vow that whatever comes out of his house, and he's imagining like a a goat or a lamb or something to come out of his house. It's, it's, It's not even something that... It's not even that... The text here says that whatever comes out to meet me, I will give as an offering. The Hebrew, for that phrase there, comes out to meet me. That is language you only ever use to describe a person. Meaning, it is entirely possible, in fact, it's likely that Jephthah planned for this to be a human sacrifice. He just didn't expect it to be his daughter. One of his slaves, maybe. My take on understanding Jephthah's vow looks something like this. He was raised as a good Hebrew boy in Gilead, but then they threw him out because he was a half-brother. And he lived out on the outskirts of Jewish society and had a lot of questionable influences in his life for many, many years. He lived by the sword. He lived an intense life. And he likely lived it apart from God. He remembered what he was taught as a kid, but he wasn't acting like a child of Israel. But suddenly, his brothers show up, and he gets a chance to win all of it back. Respect, prestige, right standing with his people, authority. And he knew, he knew enough about the recent cases of judges to know the role that he was stepping into, that this is a holy thing, that God is in this. This wandering raider suddenly is given the chance to become God's holy warrior. But he doesn't really know how to do that. He takes the job. He is used by God. But he does not understand the point of it all. Human sacrifice is not something that the Bible ever even comes close to supporting. It's not, even something, it's not something that the Jewish people practiced. But it was part of many pagan nations' religious Practices. The idea for many of them is that it's the ultimate devotion, the ultimate devotion to the God of your land, whoever it is that you worship, by giving up something incredibly valuable to you. It's really extreme. Maybe Jephthah spent too much time around pagans. Maybe he had, it had been a long time since he read Leviticus. Whatever the case, Jephthah, it seems, felt the need to prove his commitment to the cause by swearing this intense oath before God that God did not ask him to do. And this sin doesn't only rest on him. Again, how could this have happened? Why didn't anyone else stop him? He had a two-month waiting period between deciding to do this and actually doing it. Why did no one stop him? Did they agree with it? Were they ignorant of God's law? Were they scared to oppose him? Did they say, I know what's wrong, but it's none of my business? Did they try to stop him and fail? The text doesn't tell us, but none of those options are good. And this story is written in such detail here. And the reason it's done that way, it seems that we are meant to remember Jephthah's tragedy. We are not meant to remember his victory. This chapter is written in such a way that emphasizes the disgust and the disappointment that you should feel in this flawed salvation. He's supposed to be your hero. He's supposed to be God's man, and he's done something worse than any villain I could think of would ever do. Again, our big idea is that we need to allow every flawed salvation to point us toward our perfect Savior. This is the kind of story, what happened with Jephthah here, that if it were to happen today, it would make me say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's something about the disappointment, the disgrace of someone in spiritual leadership that sins and falls so far. It just cuts us to the heart. Robbie Zacharias had an amazing global ministry. He reached more people with the gospel than I could ever hope to in a dozen lifetimes but his sin is likely all he's going to be remembered for here on earth. I'm not his judge, the Lord is, but that hurts me. That hurts you. Situations like that hurt because spiritual leaders are supposed to look and act like Jesus. That's one of the reasons it takes a long time to become an elder. It's a long process because if you fall into sin as an elder, the pain of that sin is amplified throughout the entire church. Maybe you don't need a celebrity to look through. Maybe you can think of other examples of a man of God who you trusted who ended his ministry in disgrace. What's here for us today, though, as the author draws this story to the front, places it right in front of us, you know how that feels? Don't run from that feeling. Grab hold of it and use it. Chew on that for a while and let that bitter taste that it leaves in your mouth cause you to taste the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus in a whole new way. Allow that to grow your hunger, your aching, your desire for that perfect shepherd who will never fail, that perfect judge who will one day come. He is greater than Jephthah. He brings victory without disappointment. And that honestly seems like enough for one day for me. Uh, But the story of Jephthah keeps going. And really, it doesn't get any better. Let's read the first part of chapter 12. Quick disclaimer here. I go back and forth on the way I pronounce Ephraim, Ephraim like every time. So just... Expect that. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Wow. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my own hands and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. This last lesson of flawed salvation that we'll look at today is this. Jephthah's victory tore God's people apart. What a mess. Just what a nasty mess. Before we get into this last part, we do need to do a little bit more backstory. The house of Gilead that Jephthah is part of, they're from the tribe of Manasseh. And they've been in a sibling rivalry with Ephraim since the beginning. The 12 tribes of Israel, they come from Israel, whose other name is Jacob, his sons, but also his grandsons. His son Levi wasn't given a land inheritance, so he doesn't count as to the 12. And his son Joseph Counts twice because his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, become part of those tribes. Uh, there be a number in those tribes. And so Jacob gives, he's an old man at this point, and he gives Joseph, his son, his son's sons, his grandsons, he gives them a blessing. And it's typical in the way that these kind of sibling rivalries start and, and blessing issues amongst that family. Uh, he puts his arms out to bless them. And he takes the older son. The older son is expected to get the primary blessing, the right hand of blessing. And so they bring him up there. Uh, They bring in, which one was the older son? It always gets me. (laughs) Uh, Ephraim. Ephraim was the older son. Sorry, other way around. Manasseh was the older son. He's supposed to get the blessing. But Jacob, in the last minute, pulls a switcheroo. And he blesses both boys like this. And Joseph's like, whoa, 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 he's the older one. He's thinking, dad, you're really, I know you're old and you're blind, but the older son's supposed to get the blessing here. He's like, nope, I'm doing this on purpose, and you'll see. <laughs> and that caused sibling rivalry between those two tribes for years, years and years down the road, as if brothers didn't already have enough to fight about. The friction, the friction carries... the the friction between them carries into their families and carries on for generations. So it's not just that these Ephraimites who showed up here are just really hot-blooded, angry, glory-seeking people, although that does seem to be somewhat true. It's not just that they are that way. It's also that they've been looking for an excuse to fight with Manasseh for generations. If you remember the Gideon story, What did Gideon say when the angel showed up and says, mighty man of valor, go out and fight? He says, "Uh, no, I am the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest in my clan. Gideon was from Manasseh. Do you remember at the end of the story, after he wins the victory, who shows up angry? It is Ephraim. They said, why didn't you call us? They wanted some of the glory. They also wanted an excuse to pick a fight with Manasseh. So Gideon won them over with flattery and sweet talk. But a few generations later, when they come picking a fight with Jephthah, it goes a little bit differently. They say, why didn't you come get us when you were going to war? We wanted in on the action too. And Jephthah responds, I did. I marched my troops right through your territory, and I called for men to join the fight, and you said no. What's your deal? Now, whether or not he actually summoned them, we don't really know. He might have snubbed them. He might have called them. Either way, it doesn't matter. They're both being crazy. But that's his claim. And then the talking starts, the talking stops, and the fighting begins. Ephraim definitely acted in sinful pride by picking this fight this day, but Jephthah sins as he returns fire. Well, actually, it looks like he might have been the one who drew his sword first. We're not given an exact number of Jephthah's forces, but it was enough to take down 42,000 Ephraimite men. No word on how many Gileadites died that day. 42,000. Do you have any idea how many baseball stadiums that is? That number is hard for us to even picture. Some of us have never seen 42,000 people. That many of his brothers died that day. Now, even if you could excuse this as a crime of passion, Jephthah then, after the fight is over, He captured the fords of the Jordan. That means the shallow parts of the river where you can cross over. He captured those, locked them down. Which is to say, this is the only place that you can go back home. Anyone who has survived this battle today, if you're going to try and go back home, you're going to cross over this shallow spot and we're going to stop you. And we're going to play a game of password. Say this word, shibboleth. Shibboleth is a really common word. It was just for a a head of grain. It's a, you might as well say tree or grass or something. But the pronunciation of that word pointed them out as Ephraimites. They spoke a little bit differently over there, and they just couldn't get it into their head how to make the sh sound. It didn't exist in their language. And so that was the test. If you're an Ephraimite, you're going to die. We're not letting you go home. This is not just, oh, you made me mad. We fought each other. Wow, I regret this. This is no, this is a grudge. This is genocide. He puts in this policy that anyone who tries to cross this river but comes from Ephraim, they'll be killed. They're supposed to be his brothers. This is shameful. This is disgusting. This is embarrassing. But not just because they shared the same bloodline. Not just because they were relatives. They both inherited the covenant of Abraham. They both had a stone representing their family name on the breastplate of the high priest when he went into the holy place. This is not what Abraham had in his mind when he looked out that night at the sky and God said, so shall be your descendants. Murdering each other over a prideful, personal grudge. They're supposed to be the family of God. And they murdered each other by the thousands over nothing. They had a heart of bitter rivalry that ended in thousands of people dying for no reason. And that's where the story ends today. Jephthah's victory tore God's people apart. We need a Savior who will bring us together forever. Abraham probably couldn't see it that day when God made that promise to him to bless all the families of the earth through his descendants. But God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham because every nation, tribe, and tongue members of every nation, tribe, and tongue would end up joining Abraham's family. God's plan from the beginning was to include every kind of person in the family of God, and he does that through Jesus. Jesus was God in the form of a man born as a physical member of Abraham's family. He was the true son of God that Adam failed to be, that Israel failed to be. Even the righteous kings of Judah were called sons of God. They were supposed to live up to that, but they failed to be that. And through faith in God's perfect son, any failed sinner in this world can be united to God's son. If you're united to him, your sin died when he died. His resurrection is your resurrection. His eternal life is your eternal life. And if you're united to God's son, you are granted sonship with him. It doesn't matter who you were before. God can lovingly adopt you into his family by faith in his son's death for you. When you trust in Jesus, you don't become a house servant in God's household. You don't become a close friend of the family of God. You get the family name. You get a seat at the dinner table. You belong in the household of God if you enter through Christ. That's togetherness. That's togetherness family that's a glimpse of heaven the family of god worshiping him enjoying him together forever and that is what we should ache for as we read a horrible story of division like judges 12. have you seen division recently what do you respond with you throw up your hands you come up with a lot of clever strategies of how you're going to change their minds and get them to agree with you. or what is, what, what is your response? If it's anything other than aching for heaven, aching for that day when all division is gone, and then acting in response to that, you're missing it. Every flawed salvation should point you toward your perfect Savior. He is the greater Tola. He is the greater Jair who will bring the unending days of peace. He is the greater Jephthah who will save us and never put us to shame. And he's the only begotten son of God who will one day end all division and rivalry and dissension in the family of God. And there will be peace. And it will last as long as the judge shall live. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.